Welcome to the Sleep is Podcast. My name is Vlad, and I will be your host for today. My website is vladit.com. And on this episode, we have part two of our two-part interview with Dr. Gina Poe. Dr. Poe is a professor of neuroscience at UCLA and an absolute wealth of knowledge. We're so happy to have her. If you haven't yet, please go back and listen to episode eight, which is part one of our two-part series. And once you're ready, this is episode number nine of the Sleepless Podcast with Dr. Gina Poe. So here's another question that came to mind. You were talking about how obviously sleep helps to reconcile memory. So I, I guess mm-hmm. what happened to me today, let's say we have this great conversation. I learned so mm-hmm. much from it. Mm-hmm. If I want to learn and store that for long-term recall, a good night of sleep will help me get to that point, correct? Yes. Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, the worst thing you can do if you want to remember your classes is to cram <laughs> to cram yeah. for a final all night and uh, cram all that information in, take your final, and then cram another night for another final because you will not consolidate all that learning that you did. So you might do okay, you know, fairly okay on the final um, just because you've crammed all that information in recently, but um, you will not remember having taken that final or any of the things that you've learned um, in the long term. So you've, you've just described my college experience. <laughs> yes, mine too, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that also beckons the question of should we be thinking about uh, how our schools are, are functioning. Uh, yeah. But that's that's also very controversial. I don't know if I want to get you in any trouble here. Well, no, no, no. I mean, it's, it, it's you know, scientifically, it's actually fascinating. Is it better to, you know, only concentrate on one subject um, for an entire, you know, six-week period and then, and you know, consolidate so there's no interference from other subjects, consolidate that with naps and, and with a night's sleep? Um and then switch to another subject for the next six weeks. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's, that's quite possible that that's a much more efficient and, uh, way to learn than the way we have it, which is several classes a day, you know, five or six, and all one on top of the other. And then we sure. don't get a nap, and we don't sleep until, you know, 11 o'clock at night after, you know, a, a lot of other activities. So Yeah, and classes starting super early, especially before <clears throat> college where you have these, you know, yeah. 8.30, 8 a.m. class start times. Yeah, well, and that's another thing I don't know if you've talked about in other podcasts before, but um, teenagers uh, have delayed sleep, and uh, mm-hmm. they have, and that's biologically governed. They will fall asleep later, and they'll want to sleep in later. If they don't need less sleep. That's not at all true. They need a lot of sleep, but uh, because there's a lot of growing going on and a lot of brain um, changes, but um, but their sleep is delayed. So if you wake them up early in the morning, you'll be depriving them of that amazing REM sleep that's so important for you know gaining insight and critical thinking and judgment and decision making. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I love that you said that because one of the causes that we do support is later school start times. Mm-hmm. And we consistently yeah. see in counties that do implement that kids, every measurable Im- impact yeah. on failure rates to to yeah. just general depression and well-being. It just yeah. gets so much better on every level. Yeah, on every level of every single school district that's done it. Um, the changes are palpable. So I don't know why everyone isn't jumping on it if they want their kids to do well and go on to college and um, not be depressed. (laughs) 
know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's a hard one, but we're going to keep fighting the good fight, and we'll make it happen. Good. One yeah, I mean, there's, there's financial considerations, the number sure. of school buses, and, and when you're um, living in northern climes, the fact that it's dark, you know, at six in the morning, and you don't want little kids who are fine with early school times start times to be waiting for the bus in the freezing cold in the dark yeah. you know there are lots of practical considerations but i think those can be overcome with the right will yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. so back to um the reconciliation you have um a memory you want to remember it the next day you get a great night of sleep mm-hmm. and you wake up the next day but what if we flip that what if something traumatic happens and you don't want to remember it. Is there a strategy to stay awake all night? <laughs> That's a great question. It's something that we're actively pursuing in my lab right now. Um, it does appear that if we um, deprive animals of sleep after a traumatic event, they will um, not consolidate it. They won't get PTSD nearly at the same rates as um, if you give them good immediate sleep right afterward. Um, but uh, but on the other, on the flip side, if you're not getting good sleep before the traumatic event, um, one of the things that happens when you don't get a good night's sleep is you'll have a stronger homeostatic drive to sleep. So after the traumatic event, um, there might be other reasons why you're also driven to sleep. And um, if you get a lot of that rebound REM sleep, for example, in the few first few hours after a traumatic event, this is something that we haven't actually researched in humans yet. So um, take all this with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah. But um, if you get a lot of REM sleep, more REM sleep than usual after a traumatic event, you'll have a higher rate of getting PTSD. But I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to you know, prescribe you know, no sleep after traumatic events because, in fact, you probably need, depending on the nature of the trauma, you probably need, for example, protein synthesis and growth hormone release to repair, you know, physical damage that's sure. happened. Sure. Um, it's just, it appears to be that um, REM sleep period that's, that's maybe particularly harmful if you get it right after, right after, in the first few hours after a particularly trauma, traumatizing event. Um, it appears that individuals who have more, uh, less of that REM sleep um, in those first few hours are those that are uh, most resilient. But um, all animals that we've measured get more REM sleep um, seven hours plus after a traumatic event, and that doesn't seem to be um, co- uh, correlated at all with PTSD rates. So resilient animals also get more REM sleep um, seven hours plus. And the reason why we think that um, it still needs to be researched, but the reason why we think that that early REM sleep is is um, as dangerous after a traumatic event is that the whole brain is still trying is still active in a way um, that it normally falls silent during REM sleep. But if it's activated by that traumatic traumatic stressor, um, the whole stress system in the brain is still active. Then REM sleep becomes maladaptive. That's what, that's what our thought is. We need to test it. We need to get a grant mm-hmm. for it and uh, test it thoroughly. But that's yeah. our short-term idea. So if you were building, and may, hopefully one day you will be building this experiment, what period will you be looking at? Like, What is that time threshold between harmful REM sleep and it's okay to go to sleep? It seems to be um, 
about six or seven hours. Yeah. That's the, okay. that's the, that's the time period that we're looking at. Fascinating. Yeah. So, and, but it might yeah. be much shorter. For example, if there's something to be learned, um, from the trauma that you can realize how to avoid it in the future and you can you can get a handle on that right away then the research shows that the whole stress axis gets stepped down um, sooner than later if you can assign um, causality and how to avoid it in the future then mm-hmm. early REM sleep might be fine if you're able to do that do that unfortunately that's not the case in a lot of trauma Right. Um, it is random or, um, you know, there's not much to be learned from it. Exactly. And I think right. we, we uh, evolutionarily, that would make sense because yeah. where we evolved for the most part, if you stepped in a fire and you burned yourself, you would mm-hmm. want to consolidate that into right. long-term <laughs> thinking. Whereas yeah. now a soldier in the desert who, mm-hmm. you know, experiences something traumatic there, that's not mm-hmm. something in their control. So the body yeah. can't reconcile that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you might um, consolidate the wrong kinds of things, um, mm-hmm. it, the things that aren't necessarily associated with what caused that trauma in the first place. Right. So let me ask you this. You mentioned sleeping pills very briefly. What impact are you seeing them having on brain activity? Um, well, it depends on which, which med- medication you're talking about. Um, sure. Different ones like, do different things. Yeah. You talked about doing crazy things in the middle of the night. I, I right. tend to think of Ambien when, when people mention yes. that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so it doesn't happen with everyone. It doesn't happen all the time. But yeah, there are, um, seems to be more dissociated sleep states with that one. Um, and that's what happens in the brain in terms of EEG activity during any dissociated state is that there are areas of the brain that are very clearly asleep and other areas of the brain that seem more like they're awake. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but there still needs to be a lot more research, um, very careful research on things like spindles and theta and um, other microarchitecture kinds of um, things rather but than general generally, sleep state. Yeah, yeah, generally speaking, though, let's take something like uh, an ambient, which it's mm-hmm. focusing on a single, really a single yeah. part of the sleep. So it's yeah. inhibiting. What is it? Serotonin. I'm. I'm not. No. No. Sure. No. It's um, GABA. It's GABA receptors. Ag- yeah. It's not inhibiting. It's um, it's activating them. Activating GABA receptors, yeah. but that would only account for one part of the sleep, correct? So yeah. Would it stand yeah. to reason that the other critical parts of sleep are not going to happen then? Well, um, yeah, there are some research studies that show that um, sometimes it reduces REM sleep or that transition to REM sleep state, stage two. Um, a lot of them do that. So, yeah, <laughs> um, not not all of them, but some of them do impact those states. So, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think if you um, want to manipulate your sleep, um, that's not necessarily the best way to do it. (laughs) I mean, you, but, or you just do it very, very carefully looking at the literature and all the studies and, and, um, and in consultation with your physician. (laughs) Sure, sure. Figure it out, yeah. And then I'm curious also what the impact of the previous night's sleep is to the next day. 
um, mm-hmm. uh, like in terms of focus and short-term memory recall the next day. Is yeah. there any correlation there? Oh, yeah. There are a lot of studies that are really consistent about what changes with sleep deprivation. And, um, so one of the things being your ability to attend to um, anything, <laughs> your attention is, is yeah. definitely compromised um, if there's increased drive for sleep. There are, and that um, goes along with studies that show there are local slow waves that appear when you're sleep deprived. So that is also consistent with parts of the brain being asleep when, in, instead of attending to the things you want to attend to, like for example, driving down the road. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you want your attention to be high. So um, yeah, so that um, we found that the ability to learn. Um, both hippocampus-dependent learning and procedural-dependent learning um, are both improved by good night's sleep um, before before the task. So, um, so that's let's see, that's learning, that's attention, um, emotional um, responsivity, your ability to control your emotions and um, and not be to not fly off the handle is definitely. Um, something that is compromised by sleep deprivation, your ability to um, not respond compulsively. You know, gambling gets worse with sleep deprivation, which is, <laughs> um, you know, what I mean by worse is um, people have a harder time stopping, you know, when they're ahead or when they're behind. Um, and that all has to do with prefrontal cortex function. And the prefrontal cortex is interesting because it's um, pretty much off throughout the duration of sleep, but all the stages of sleep, it it turns off um, relatively, it's relatively inactive. So if you don't allow that to happen, it's quite clear that the functions that the prefrontal cortex um, governs are compromised, and that includes judgment, decision-making, um, and impulsivity. Yeah, So that and that's the, the executive Yes. function of the brain, right? The one yeah. that says, maybe I shouldn't eat that Twinkie. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I, I've i heard anyway that um, President Clinton said the worst decisions he made as president were ones he did on a sleep-deprived brain. <laughs> that would be consistent, yeah. Yeah. So um, what are your recommendations for having healthier sleep, especially as it relates to the brain? Right. Um, well, I know that's I very broad. <laughs> no, 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 that's all right. Um, because there, I'm not making it up. This is something that you could actually find on websites. Um, when you look up sleep hygiene, there are like 10 different things you can do to uh, make your night's sleep better. So it includes exercise during the day, um, you know, a shower at night, keeping your um, electronics um, and that strong blue light um, from your eyes for the, a few hours before bedtime. Um, so there are lots of things you can do to make yourself have a good night's sleep. Um, but also I would say don't worry. <laughs> I think part of the problem with those who have um, insomnia once in a while is that they worry about their night's sleep. It's, there's a great cartoon where this this man gritting his teeth and squinting his eyes really tight and saying, I will sleep, I will sleep well tonight. <laughs> And, uh, you know, as he's lying down in bed and that's, you know, inconsistent with, yeah, yeah. With, with actually falling asleep. So, so um, if you wake up in the middle of the night, I'd say, you know, 
don't stress about it. Maybe there's something you need to be doing or thinking about or just lie there and think your thoughts and let yourself fall back to sleep when you will. Um, because, you know, the good thing is, I think that um, most of the time our bodies are pretty good at regulating the amount of sleep we need <laughs> mm-hmm. versus the other things going on in our lives. So. Yeah, and it's interesting. One of the previous guests that we had on the show, he mentioned that when we see people with sleep breathing disorders, it's such an unpleasant experience for them mm-hmm. to sleep because they're literally suffocating is yes. that they start to develop a fear of sleep. Yeah, 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 I've heard of that. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, it's really important to breathe while we sleep. <laughs> yeah. That is uh, something that if you're having trouble with that, definitely get some help. So, and what, and maybe this isn't uh, an appropriate question for you, but what is the blood oxygen levels that you should have when you're sleeping? Yeah, that isn't really something that's in my, in my wheelhouse. I don't really know. Um, But I know it shouldn't go down to 60% as it does for some people with, uh, with obstructive sleep apnea. Sure, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I would say above 90% would be best. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Are there any sleep myths that you see that you just cringe when you see or hear them? Yeah, yeah. One is the, you know, the 20-minute sleep or the 90-minute sleep um, pattern where people just take a bunch of naps and think that they don't need a a solid night's sleep um, because they just, what is that called? I can't remember the name of that pattern. Oh, I think it's like multiphasic sleep where it's, yeah, I know what you're talking about, where they sleep several times throughout the day, but don't get one continuous block. Right. That, that is, that is super unhealthy. That's, uh, we can definitely model that in animals and it's consistent with all kinds of bad things in the immune system and, um, and cognition. It's, it's not, it's not good. (laughs) That's and what, what about like what about people that claim biphasic sleep that that people were evolved to sleep in two separate phases? Is there any credence to that? No, there's. I don't think there's credence either way. Um, okay. I I, I do um, see studies from Sarah Mednick's lab, which shows that um, that those who do habitually nap, you know, they just take naps on the weekend or whenever um, they can, that they actually cognitively benefit quite a bit from a nap um, during the day. So it will um, definitely help consolidate their learning and memory. But if you never nap and feel like you can't nap and you don't like napping and when you nap you wake up groggy and cranky, um, then those people actually don't benefit. They don't Probably, really benefit yeah. from a nap. <laughs> so interesting that there are these different styles. So it might be the case that some people have beautiful and healthy biphasic sleep while other people you know, should just stick to a, a night's sleep. Yeah. What do you think of sleep trackers? What is your opinion on those? Oh, yeah. I, I've i seen some amazing, you know, I I think that they're pretty good. I mean, they're different ones with using different types of technology, but I think it's a lot of fun. And um, you mm-hmm. should take everything you see with a grain of salt. But, but um, yeah, I, I haven't heard of any harm done with them, and I think they're fun to, to see. I've seen some beautiful patterns from them, and some and some good correlation um, with with um, you know objective EEG 
you know, the best. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, Are there any, not, any devices particularly that you know of or just generally you've seen correlation? Just generally I've seen, okay. seen pretty good correlation, yeah. Uh, I'm sure there are ones that are worse than, than and ones that are better. I can't yeah. imagine the ones that are under your pillow are, are that good. <laughs> but you know. Well, I'm I'm more concerned that they're not really measuring brain waves. At best, definitely they they're not. just measuring movement. So yeah, that, well, that's obviously what they're doing. Yeah, they're definitely not measuring. Uh, for example, you could never get the density of sleep spindles from these wearable mm-hmm. devices that are on your wrist. <laughs> you know, definitely sure. not. Uh, and even um, the simple ones that are on your head. Um, you know, often don't um, get that kind of level of of, um, of information. But you know, uh, even with a couple of electrodes, you could get sleep spindle density and and REM sleep, um, especially if you've got some muscle activity. Since atonia is kind of the characteristic of REM sleep, if you can mm-hmm. get measure muscle activity in addition to brain waves, then you're going to have a um, really good um, sleep characteristic. Yeah. I'm, and I'm I'm asking this question for a mm-hmm. selfish reason, truthfully, mm-hmm. because it seems that that phase three mm-hmm. slow yeah. wave sleep. I've been yeah. using various different trackers for years now, and they yeah. all consistently tell me mine is terrible. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. I can't. Uh, I'm trying to tell myself it's the trackers, but yeah. at some point you have to look around and realize that you're the jerk in the room. So <laughs> no, um, no, it just it tells you you don't get much of it. Yeah, it seems to be that I'm like well, like a standard deviation below where I should be with deep sleep, according to those devices. uh, Do you heal from injury fairly well? I do, um, but but it's curious because there was Mm -hmm. a phase in my life about five years ago or Mm -hmm. or six years years ago that I started Mm -hmm. really trying to put on muscle mass. So I was eating a ton of protein. I was in the gym every single morning. Uh, Seriously, I was in the gym at four or five o'clock in the morning. And mm-hmm. getting only maybe five, six hours of sleep. So it didn't matter how much I was doing. It right. I wasn't gaining as much as I would have liked. Um, right. it, it was minimal to where I thought I should have been at that time. Right. So I'm wondering if the lack of deep sleep that may have been um, the core of the problem. Well, it might be. Uh, that's, it hasn't been studied. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be really interesting. Yeah. But the broader question is, do you, if you, and I know you're not going to prescribe anything, and I respect that, mm-hmm. but are there any strategies to improving deep sleep from what you have seen or, or anything that you can think of? Um, actually, there's one fascinating study um, <clears throat> um, where they had people wear these suits. They're like wetsuits, but um, they were threaded with um, um basically tubes of water that would carry um chase basically warm your skin um a little bit like half a degree or a degree or two and um i think what they did is they just warmed the skin a little bit and in elderly people that had their slow wave sleep destroyed it actually restored their slow wave sleep back to normal levels mm. <laughs> just by warming the skin a little bit now i don't think that study's been repeated um and it would be really interesting to see more research on that. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. that's, and then I saw one other study, I can't remember though, but I just saw it recently. If I remember, I'll let you know, um, <laughs> where they were also able to completely restore slow waves to normal in elderly people. Yeah. Fascinating. So a, Is there anything that you know that disrupts slow wave sleep from day to day life? Uh, well, actually, yeah. Um, a lot of noise at night. Um, mm-hmm. can disrupt it. 
yeah. Um, for example, uh, television, you know, where you're watching a program and then the um, ads come on and they're, you know, 25% louder than the, than the um, show you were watching. Yeah. That sudden change in volume can cause a micro arousal that could disrupt your, your sleep. And um, so I wouldn't leave the television on while I'm sleeping. Or sleeping in an apartment in New York City. Right. <laughs> that one right. would probably do it as well. <laughs> that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, you know, I think that's – you've given us so much of your time, and I'm so grateful for that. And are there any other thoughts that you have, any parting thoughts or concerns or anything else that you want to leave the audience with? Um, I don't have any concerns um, per se, uh, except that I think we've revealed over this interview that there's a lot left to study. Yeah. <laughs> and I encourage you, if you're interested, or anyone else who's listening who's interested, to get involved, um, get these questions answered, because um, one person can make a big difference in what we know about all this. How would you suggest people start that process? Well, um, there are lots of different ways. One, you can just encourage your politicians to uh, support <laughs> research. Um, others, you can go online and you know um, support you know with money um, research pro- projects that are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, another is to you know just do your own little experiments, just try things. Um, you know, the end um, of one, yeah, yeah, the end of one. <laughs> Um, and then if you're really interested and you've got the time, you might want to um, volunteer or even work in a research lab like I did when I got out of college and just get involved in actually doing it. Learn, learn and do. Yeah. Well, Read books. Wise word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are there any, um, how can people find you? How can people learn more about your work? Right. Um, well, um, I don't really have a good website right now, but if you look me up, Gina Poe, um, you'll find my university websites, and I'll try and beef them up so that uh, it's better. You can also look, uh, Google me, and you'll come up with some of my research articles, um, Some of many of which are um, accessible to the public, so you can download them and read them. I don't um, say they're accessible in terms of readability. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but I would also be you know happy to um, I should probably actually go through my various articles and and digest them for people and put them out there somehow. It's uh, a good idea. Full transparency. Before this interview, I did research and start reading some of your articles, and it mm-hmm. took a lot of googling for me to understand the words. So. <laughs> I apologize. I'm sorry. No, no. I mean this I, is. My, my this very is first technical language, yeah. Yeah, my very first publication. I went through 16 different drafts, and when it was finally published, I was so proud. thought it was so <laughs> crystal clear, and I sent it to my mom, and, and I, who's an avid reader and an extremely intelligent person. And, um, and I asked her, you know, the next day, what did you think? And she said, oh, Gina, I fell asleep on the first paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> so you can also read my articles if you want better sleep. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, it's funny because it's, it's very technical stuff and it's very complicated questions. So we just don't have the words in the English language to express them simply. So it's, yeah. it's a necessity. It's a function of the necessity of, of what you're doing to, to have to yeah. use the right verbiage. But actually, I think, you know, you basically your question has spurred um, something I've been thinking about for a while, which is that scientists really should go back through all of each and every one of their publications and maybe do a little 
you know, podcast or something that mm-hmm. they put out there, um, maybe a YouTube video where they just explain in simple terms what the article is saying. You know, take five minutes or ten minutes yeah. to just say. That would be really useful. Um, I think that would be a really nice thing. And I think college students all over the world would be so grateful for that, too. <laughs> <laughs> but you have... so. Dr. Poe, you have an open invitation. Anytime you want to come on and explain any research that you've been doing, that is, just give me a call and we'll have you on that next week. That wow. I would be, it would be a privilege to, to, to test this concept with you. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I wouldn't take that much of your time and it would be a fun thing to try. Yeah, so yeah, for much. sure. It could even be a side project. I'd be happy to help you with that, even yeah. set up a website for it. That, would be, wow. that wouldn't be hard at all. Wow, thank you, Vlad. That's really wonderful. Yeah, that's great. And then my last question, and I ask everybody this, is what is your sleep question? What do you want to know more about? Um, Well, I do want to know the connection between sleep and post-traumatic stress disorder. I would love to know the connection between sleep and schizophrenia. That's where your sleep spindles are um, really reduced. And so is there a way way to increase sleep spindles and help with schizophrenia? I I want to know about sleep and depression because I think the two of those definitely have a link. Um, so basically, uh, mental health, <laughs> sleep and mental health is my brain yeah, question yeah. overall. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm just curious also what role inflammation and diet play in that as well because there seems to be a continuum there. Absolutely, and it could be that stress um, is, you know, leaked out in different ways in different people. So, uh, for example, in some people, it might result in inflammation and um, and sleep and inflammation is certainly connected as well. That's a whole huge field that, you know, the whole immune system is pretty complicated and, you know, the brain is complicated. And so putting the two together is, uh, takes a special person. But there are those out there, you know, researching the two together and the I give them credit. (laughs) Well, I think, uh, like I said, taking enough of your time, you've been Mm -hmm. so gracious and generous and Mm -hmm. informative. Thank you, Dr. Poe. It's just a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to talk to you, Bob. Thank you. 